Welcome to Exchange Church, where we desire to connect and grow people in Jesus. Thanks for listening to our Bible message today, and feel free to share it around. Before we start, let's open in prayer, shall we? Okay. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the eternal truths that guide us day by day. We thank you for the living word, Jesus Christ, your precious Son, and the sureness of his presence in our lives. Teach us how to turn to you so that your thoughts become our thoughts and your ways become our ways. Open our hearts and minds and to listen and to obey your precious word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord. In Jesus' name I pray this prayer. Amen. Many years ago, and it is many, many years ago, when I was a young fella, one of our Sunday school teachers taught me this little song as a chorus, and some of you of my generation might remember it. And I had to go back and actually find the words for it, although to make sure I'm quoting it right. And so the song goes like this. It's a very simple little song. But theologically, there's a lot of truth in this particular song. It says, I'm happy today. I'm happy today. In Jesus Christ, I'm happy today. He has taken all my sins away, and that's why I'm happy today. The second chorus is, I'm singing today. I'm singing today. In Jesus Christ, I'm singing today. He has taken all my sins away, and that's why I'm singing today. And the last chorus is, I'm living today. I'm living today. In Jesus Christ, I'm living today. He has taken all my sins away, and that's why I'm living today. You might remember this, some of you. And it was a lovely little chorus, and a lot of the truths that I learned, I learned in Sunday school, actually. You know, and a lot of these little choruses have amazing truths in them. This one talks about being happy, it talks about being sing- singing, and it talks about living. But it's just not about ha- being happy, being singing, and living. The emphasis is on Jesus Christ. That's why we are happy, that's why we are singing, and that's why we are living. And why? Because he's taken all our sins away. And so that's the very fundamental truth. You know, sometimes we don't have to be very complicated in our theology. If we remember some of the basics, it'll it'll see us through life. So the question I want to ask myself and the question I ask you today is this notion of the search for happiness. Is happiness possible? It's a big question. Is the very notion of happiness that intelligent people have learned to see true? The Bible believes that happiness is real, but true biblical happiness is extremely different to what the world sees as being happy. Biblical happiness is an unwavering happiness that does not depend upon everything going well in our lives. Biblical happiness is an unwavering happiness that does not depend upon everything going well in our lives. So, a few introductory points. According to our cultural historians, our modern age has tools to solve the mysteries of life and and eliminate all social ills. I would suggest that the evidence to date in terms of human happiness is to the contrary. We have made great strides technology from a technological point of view, socially, and we and we uh, we have been able to abolish miseries such as slavery, As a result of vaccines, we have eradicated some major diseases such as polio, a lot of whooping cough, a whole range of diseases that vaccines have helped. 
But when we look around, human misery and suffering still exists on a massive scale in all societies even today. This is a serious problem that we face in, uh, today, and the brightest minds are applying themselves to solve the problem of human misery. Time magazine regularly features articles on happiness. It's a regular thing. Australian researcher and author Hugh McKay has devoted his entire life, actually, at looking at what constitutes a good life. You know, and he's written a book called The Good Life. Even the American Declaration of Independence has at its core life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness by its citizens. It's a very interesting concept if you really look at their particular constitution. This notion of the pursuit of happiness is very much embedded in the American constitution as well. If you type the word happiness into a Google search, you'll come up with 10,000 different references which have the word happy in it. With all the modern progress man has made, are we happier than our ancestors? This is a great deal of evidence that suggests we are not happy at all. Some of the things that plague modern societies, things like anxiety, depression, loneliness, these seem to be constants in modern society even today. So what's going on here? The quest for happiness seems to be as elusive as ever. Are we looking for happiness perhaps in all the wrong places? The Bible says that what makes you happy or unhappy are deeply spiritual. They're not external external elements. They are deeply spiritual. The Bible principle for happiness is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Why? Because God is eternal and his principles are eternal. What I'd like to do today is look at Psalm 1 and bring it to bear on the issue of human happiness. What does the Bible tells us about happiness is more important for us as Christians in this modern world. So we have to be a light to the world. When people are suffering anxiety, depression, and loneliness, all three causes don't escape Christians, by the way. We are also plagued with these issues, but we have a hope that the world doesn't have. And that's what I want to bring today. What is the hope that Psalm 1 brings to us today? So I've outlined four principles that I want to relay to you this morning. The first principle in Psalm 1 tells us that happiness is possible. It tells happiness is possible. In Psalm 1, it says, blessed. It starts with, blessed is the man. Do we ever consider the word blessed? And as we were driving today here, Janet even said to me, Jim, this word blessed comes up a lot in the Bible and we hear it. What does it mean? Well, blessed means joyful. It means satisfied. It means fulfilled. It means happy. Blessed is the man who who does these things, it says. So blessedness is very much part of the Bible. We, We say... Many, many things to each other. God bless you, for instance. You know, we, we pass blessings to people, and that's the right thing to do. But we need to understand why are we using this word blessed. The first thing we see is that happiness and blessedness is possible, as I said. Almost all of us, unless you've had a very harsh childhood, start out thinking that happiness is possible. And if you're not happy, somewhere along the line, something critical has occurred in your life. So we start out with this very positive view that happiness is possible. And as time goes by, as we experience life, we start to think happiness is not nearly as easy as we thought. Remember, if you might remember Malcolm Fraser many years ago, he said life wasn't meant to be easy, right? And and it's true, in many ways, life is not meant to be easy. But in amongst all that uneasiness, we can experience joy. 
But when you look at the world, it's becoming very pessimistic. And this is not a recent thing. This is becoming a lifelong thing. I've, I've tracked these things over many years, and I like reading. Even the great literature that we are familiar with emphasizes things like unhappiness. Look at this statement by the great English writer Shakespeare. In Macbeth, he says this, Life is like a walking shadow, a poor player who struts his hour upon the stage and is heard no more. A tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. What a, what a nihilistic statement that is. What a hopeless statement that is. It's an awful, bleak description of life. And some people in the world live according to these nihilistic principles of life. Hopelessness. I've got friends who are in academia who are very much clever people but live in a world of nihilistic hopelessness in life. And, you know, they're still rejecting Jesus Christ, you know. But we, are, we start out thinking happiness is natural and end up thinking happiness is unachievable. But that's not the case in the Bible. The Bible says that it is possible to be a fundamentally and consistently happy person irregardless of your circumstances. Which brings me to my second point. Real happiness is fundamental and it's not superficial. Real happiness is fundamental and it's not superficial. If happiness is possible, why do so few people have it? Because they're seeking it in the wrong places. Happiness is fundamental and not superficial. But what do I mean by this? Superficial happiness is on the surface. It's humorous, it's light-hearted, and it's not anchored in anything devoid of substance. It's full of cliches. You know, even our modern-day pop songs and things like that are full of cliches, and, and they are just momentary. They mean nothing. You know, I came across a song many years ago, and some of you may be... It's a little catchy little song which says something like, Be happy, don't worry. You remember that song? You know, and, and then, you know, I even sing it. I, I like music and I like to sing along with all these little catchy phrases and things like that. But it's an empty, it's empty really. It's, it's on the surface, it's humorous, it's lighthearted, and it's not anchored in any great substance. But what is fundamental happiness? If you've got superficial happiness, what is fundamental happiness? Fundamental happiness, on the other hand, is where one's happiness is deeply embedded in a source that provides sustenance throughout the seasons of life. So fundamental happiness is where one's happiness is deeply embedded in a source that provides sustenance throughout the seasons of life. The happy man in verse 3 of Psalm 1 is like a tree planted by a river and leaves, and, and leaves do not wither. What a wonderful metaphor. A tree is planted. It does not plant itself. It, there's a divine transaction that has been taking place. We have been planted, and, and our planter is Jesus Christ. We have been planted in his word, right? The tree is subject to seasons. It's not always fruitful. It's not always blossoming. And yet this particular tree is unlike other trees because it is planted near a riverbank. And, and its roots have access to a constant stream of water. The, the water is available through all the seasons, droughts, floods, and other natural disasters. That is the metaphor in Psalm 1. The tree is planted by a riverbank where the water is constant and the roots, roots have access to a constant stream of water. The first major mistake we make is we try to find our happiness in external circumstances. If happiness is in the external we expect it to come raining down on us at any moment. I discovered a new word the other day, which I found a lot of young people are using these days, and I had to go and look it up. It's called FOMO. 
you know, and now all the young people now know that. But as an oldie, I just wonder, what is FOMO about? It's fear of missing out. And, you know, that's what it does on Facebook and Instagram and all of these places. They're all about FOMO, you know, because they read up these sites and they think everyone's having a great time and I'm miserable. What's wrong? So this notion of fear of missing out happens. The Bible says that real happiness is found inside you, not on Facebook, not even in your friends. Happiness never consists in what happens to you, but by who you are. It's who you are that determines your happiness. It's what you draw from in terms of adversity. That's where your happiness comes from. There's an old saying, two two men looked out through prison bars. One saw the stars and another saw mud. Circumstances are identical for these two men, yet one saw stars and the other man saw mud. What are we looking at? Are we looking to God or are we looking at the world and seeing all the anxiety, the depression, the loneliness, and so on. Of course, we will, be, we will experience those um, emotions as well. But let's not look at the emotions that we are feeling. Recognize our emotions. Today is a time of sadness for a particular family in the church. But I know, I know Dan, and I know Sam, and I know they're anchored in God's word. So that will see them through, but that's not denying the emotions that they're going through right now. And those emotions are extremely important, and we need to understand them. I don't say this lightly because in our personal circumstances, my daughter-in-law is going through a similar circumstance that Sam's going through right here, right now. And I share this quite openly. And they are very good personal friends, these two couples. And one of the first people Sam rang was my son. So I know what's going on. And so it was hard for me to talk about happiness today. So, so what is our response when we are faced with circumstances? In 1 Peter, it states, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. (coughs) If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that tested the genuineness of your faith. (coughs) More precious than gold, that perishes, though (coughs) it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory. And honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your fight, the salvation of your souls. Often we are unlike trees planted by the river, but planted in circumstances that come to us. We draw from the outside, not from the inside. The word of God says, be still and know that I'm God. Sorry about that. Fundamental happiness is stimulated in adversity because its roots have gone deep down into God's word, into a relationship with God and into a fellowship with other believers. We are partakers of a divine nature, something that has become part of us. We are branches rooted in the vine called Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I'm the vine. You are the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. Jesus, the vine, sustains us just like the river sustains the trees. 
The revelation here is that Jesus Christ is the river of life. As in Psalm 1. That river is really referring to Jesus Christ in our context. He is the vine. Unless we are deeply rooted in him, we will shrivel up and die when unfavorable circumstances of life hit us. And it will hit each and every one of us to different degrees. It's not all about being happy every day. The second major mistake we make is rather than controlling our allegiances, we try to control our environment to bring about happiness. Which brings me to my third principle. Principle three. Happiness is a byproduct of righteousness. In many ways, this is the most important point that I want to dwell on. If your happiness, if you pursue happiness, it will always elude you. Again, Australian researcher and writer Hugh McKay, who is a good man, makes this statement in his book, The Good Life. This is what he has to say. If the pursuit of happiness were true, it would make sense to pursue happiness. Just go to the attractive stuff, the positive stuff, and the pleasurable stuff. Calculate the satisfaction you will get out of something before agreeing to it. Avoid the tough challenges unless you can be sure of getting high satisfaction from meeting them. Don't, whatever you do, get caught up in other people's problems. They might drag you down and diminish your prospects of happiness. After all, a problem shared is a problem doubled. There's a good reason to keep up clear of people's, people in need. What a selfish attitude that is. But he was identifying how people live in life these days. As Christians, we do not subscribe to any of that stuff. But Hugh McKay has clearly articulated what he sees as being a very much self-centered society. And when you're all about yourself, happiness will elude you because all you're chasing is happiness. Hugh McKay echoes King Solomon who as revealed in the book of Ecclesiastes indulged in every conceivable pleasure and arrived at the conclusion that there was no satisfaction at all in these pleasures and they were severely and they were relatively and purely nothing else but vanity. This is what he says. This is what Solomon says, considered to be one of the wisest men in the Bible. Vanity of all vanities, Solomon states. By the end of Ecclesiastes, this is what Solomon has to say. He starts off by being very, very depressing. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, it is a very depressing book. But when you come to the end, you see there's hope. What he says at the end, he says this. The end of the matter, when all has been heard, when all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is Ecclesiastes. He starts off by, you know, he was a man that had numerous wives and a thousand concubines. You know, every pleasure, he never denied himself. But at the end of the day, he calls it vanity, all vanities. And he says, you know, God's ultimate responsibility, a man's ultimate responsibility at the end of it all was, he says this, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And that's the fundamental reason for why we are here as well. The Bible also states that if you pursue happiness for its own sake, you will end up with nothing, just like Solomon did. If you make your marriage, your children, your career the number one one priority, you will never be happy, as much as good all of these things are. All these things are good in themselves, but they will have... They will all have inherent possibilities to disappoint and dissatisfy. Children disappoint. Marriage disappoint. 
wives disappoint, husbands disappoint. So our priority has to be rooted in God. This is what Jesus says. Seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things will be added to you. That's not to say we can't develop a good marriage. That's not to say we can't bring up children in the admonition of the Lord. All of these things are important, but don't make it your priority because they can become idols in your life. Your own family can become an idol in your life. And God becomes second place. Is God committed to your happiness? Of course he is. Absolutely God is committed to our happiness. You come to him because he created you and he owns you. That's why we come to him. We don't come to him to make us happy. He's not our cosmic bellboy that we ring and he appears. God is not that. The only way you know how you have come to God is through the bad seasons of life. The bad seasons of life teach us a lot about what it means to follow God. If you say what God did, what, if you say what God did, it did to, what good did it do to me to come to church, read the Bible, and pray? You've got you've got it all wrong because all you're doing there is you are saying you are working through salvation through works. You know, I did this for you, God, it's an exchange. I did this for you, God, you must do it for me. I prayed, nothing happened. I read the Bible, nothing happened. Your number one priority is not your personal happiness. Your number one priority is to realize that God is your creator. He is your savior. He is your Lord. And until we understand that, we will be wrestling with our emotions all the time. Not denying our emotions, but constantly wrestling with our emotions. We have to live above our emotions and live on the fact of the Bible and its truth. Jesus requires us to daily die to self, take up our cross and follow him. And in so doing, happiness is possible. You know, it's something we need to understand that we are called to die to ourselves on a regular basis. And in dying, we flourish. You know, but if we don't die to ourselves, we do not flourish because we'll be living at a level which is carnal and secular. But once we die to ourselves, we, we rise up with Christ in heavenly places and we understand the meaning of what it means to be really happy. The irony is... is the less you are concerned about your happiness and the more you are concerned about Christ, the happier you become. That's the irony. The less you are concerned about your happiness and the more you are concerned about Christ, the happier you become. Make it a lifestyle and you will repeat the benefits. The word blessing in the Bible is repeated over and over again in the context it is a byproduct of an action undertaken. So blessedness is a byproduct. It says in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed is the man who hungers and thirsts after righteousness, for he shall be filled. Read the Beatitudes to gain an understanding as to who is blessed. The Beatitudes is a very good thing. Read the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. who are my encouragements for you this year. If you read the Beatitudes, you understand what blessedness means. It starts off by, blessed is the man who hungers and thirsts after righteousness, for he shall be filled. So as I said before, Blessedness is a byproduct of an action. So you need to understand that. That's why Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. It never says, Blessed is the man who seeks happiness for its own sake. In Psalm 1, it is clearly articulated this principle. It says, in Psalm 1, it's clearly articulates the same principle. It says, blessed, in other words, joyful, happy, at peace is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on this law he meditates day and night. 
And then it goes on to say about the byproduct of this man's action is happiness. The byproduct of this man's action is happiness. It is not his primary focus. Happiness is not the primary focus of this person. As a result of his actions, the Bible describes him as being like this. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaves does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way... But the way of the wicked will perish. So you can see the consequences and the actions that the byproduct of blessedness. The pursuit of righteousness, I'm not giving you a formula for the pursuit of righteousness. It is an expression of gratitude to what was accomplished on Calvary's cross by Jesus Christ for you and me. That is what blessedness is. It is an expression of gratitude. Of, to what was accomplished on Calvary's cross by Jesus Christ for you and me. So if you seek righteousness, you get happiness thrown in regardless of the circumstances. So we must seek righteousness. And righteousness is right living, another way. Right living according to the Bible and his word. That's what righteousness means. It seems to be a very old-fashioned word, but you can break it down. And all it means is right living. Seek happiness and you end up with nothing. The last principle is principle four. Happiness is not something that happens to you. It's something you choose. It's not something that happens to you. So there is an action on behalf that we have to, to undertake as well. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So there are three negatives here. The man who is blessed... He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. And he doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, what does that mean? That proves that if you want to be happy, you have to first see what you are doing wrong and make a change of allegiance. Walking with ungodly counsel speaks about the intellectual influences on your life. Does the word of God take priority over the world of ungodly professionals? I speak here to young people in particular and old people as well. Young people who are going through tertiary studies in particular can be guided by ungodly influences as well. You really have to know God's word if you're going through that particular passage in your life because you can be influenced. Some of my professors were very influential people on my life, but I had equally influential pastors in my life when I was going through that period of my life and I thank them for their influence of my life because these men were ungodly but they were good men in many other ways you know they believed strongly in some of the views that they believe in but they weren't people that you could sit at their feet and listen because you would be taken down wrong pathways with them so if you are particularly in the humanities or the social sciences or something like that you you could be affected greatly by wrong thinking sitting at the feet of ungodly people standing with sinners speaks about your behavior what is your behavior are you seen to be in behavioral areas which you surely shouldn't be You know, ask this old question, which one of my pastors said, would you take Jesus into certain environments that you go into? He challenged me many years ago when I was a young man. He said that to a youth group that I was part of. He said, would you young people take Jesus into the environments that you go into? 
It applies to all people, young people, everyone. So think about where, how, who are we standing with? That's not to say we don't mix with sinners. That's not to say, but we have to manage our own behaviors while we are in those environments as well. We have to be aware that, you know, bad behavior corrupts. And we have to be, if we're constantly submitting ourselves to behaviors that are not right, then we are standing with sinners. So sitting in the Bible indicates whom do you belong to. In the ancient, in, in Rome, in Paul's time, in David's time, they were talking about who, who are you sitting with? Were you sitting with Romans? Were you sitting with Greeks? Were you sitting with Gentiles? Were you sitting with slaves? Or were you sitting with God's people, in those terms, Israelites or Christians? Who owns you, in other words? Who are you sitting with on a regular basis? Because very soon you could be tarnished by the types of people you are sitting with, you're standing with, and you're walking with. So at some point you have to find out who owns you. What owns you? You know, for older people... Career-minded people, sometimes materialism, career, money, hobbies, all of these things can be where we worship at. They can become idols. When Paul says, this is what Paul says, I'm perplexed but not driven into despair. I'm struck down but not crushed. You know what he's saying. He's saying, I'm like the godly man. I have roots that go deep down into a relationship with God. When the seasons of life affect me, I go even deeper into God, and I'm nourished, and I don't wither on the vine. I've, ta- I've tapped into the very source of life, and nothing can extinguish my relationship with God. Why? Because he sustains me. That's just my paraphrase of what Paul is saying. But that's what he's saying. He's tapped into this river of life, who is Jesus Christ. So if my career prospects get snatched away, if my desire to marry never eventuates, if my finances do not improve, if healing never comes, I will feel the pain because these are good desires. But even when they don't eventuate, God will sustain me through his word and by the comforting presence of the Holy Spirit. God will still sustain me even when none of these things eventuate. In the old days, there was a phrase that was used. It was called the dark night of the soul, right? It was a phrase called the dark night of the soul. And it meant that we will experience the dark night of our souls from time to time because life brings about curveballs that we weren't even anticipating or experiencing. So we have to understand. But the Bible, again, gives us hope. It says in Psalms, again, after the... After the after the night, morning will come and the sun will shine. So we have to remember that even after the darkest periods in our lives, morning will come and the sun will shine. And I like to see the sun as S-O-N. The sun will shine again in our lives. I know and I've seen many afflicted Christians despise their pain, manifesting the joy of the Lord as their strength. They are not denying their emotions of pain and suffering, but their roots go deep down into their relationship with Christ and his word which sustains them. Recently I saw a video on the war in Burma which I followed closely, that is my homeland, and witnessed a family who had lost everything praying and thanking God over a meager meal. They were sitting down, they had nothing. They, were, they, they called them uh, internally displaced people and there are two million of them. And they were sitting there, this little family, and thanking God over a meager meal. So suffering brings us closer to God and enables God to minister to us. There's a difference between trusting your spouse and making your spouse your trust. There's a difference between wanting something and letting it own you, sitting in it, putting all of your weight on it. 
The only person we can put our weight on is God. It is only in God we can place our trust in. Why? Because everything else is temporal. It wasn't by accident that the American founding fathers placed the word in God we trust on the American dollar bill. It was meant to be a constant reminder to the American people that money was not where they were to place their ultimate trust. What a wonderful thing the forefathers in America did. In God we trust. The choice before us is the same. Who do we trust? Who we trust is whom we will serve. In Matthew 6.24 it says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Is my life one of divided loyalties? That's a question I ask of myself. What are the fundamental allegiances in your life? I will serve God as long as it does not impact my personal happiness. Is that the way we sometimes think? Am I willing to turn away from the things that have my heart and my mind and are guiding me to ungodly decisions? If you are a Christian profoundly unhappy, you might still be wedded to the old ways and sitting in the wrong places. Consider the prayer of Joshua 24:14 to 18. Joshua reminds us this. Joshua reminds us as to who we should be serving. This is what he says. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether your gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But for as for me and my house, this is what Joshua says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it for us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did, these, and who did those signs in our sight, and preserved us in all the ways that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the people, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we will also serve the Lord, for he is our God. Can we also be like Joshua and the Israelites and declare Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord of our lives? He has redeemed us from our sins by dying on the cross of Calvary. Is there anything more than this act worthy of our gratitude? Choose to serve God and you will lead a blessed life through all the seasons of life. Pursue happiness for its own sake and you will end up miserable. Godliness and contentment is great gain, the word of God says. King Solomon chose riches and ended up with nothing. The Son of God chose to do the will of the Father and reigns with the Father in heavenly places over everything, over all eternity. Do you still want to be in control of your life by seeking the elusive mirage of happiness as your number one priority? Or are you willing to relinquish control to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit the choice for you and for me is to, is to make the choice this morning. I pray that the power of the Holy Spirit resides in us and that we will make the right choice this morning. So in conclusion, I want you to remember the four points that I've raised. The first point in Psalm 1 tells us that happiness is possible through God. The second principle, real happiness is fundamental and not superficial. The third principle is happiness is a byproduct of righteousness. And the fourth principle is happiness is not something that happens to you. It's something for you to choose. So choose carefully and choose wisely. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, as we enter a period of great worldwide turbulence and uncertainty,
May we not be scattered by the winds of adversity, but may our faith and trust in you become stronger through the help of the Holy Spirit who resides in us and guides and comforts us through your precious word. May we not just be hearers of your word, but but in obedience be doers of your word. Strengthen our faith in you, Lord Jesus, so that we may be able to stand with our eyes fixed firmly on you when trials and tribulations come. May our happiness be deeply planted in you and in your precious word. I pray this prayer for myself and for my brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Amen. We hope you found today's talk challenging and fruitful. Don't hesitate to get in touch by visiting our website or sending us an email. But we'd love for you to join us in person as well. Thank you.